name of the true and living God. Amen. Please be seated. The great professor of theology, David H. Kelsey, stood in the pulpit of the chapel of Yale Divinity School for the last commencement that he would experience on the faculty after 40 years teaching at that institution. And as he stood in the pulpit and looked out at all of the faculty and the graduating students and some parents and others, he told them, it was a byword among ancient Greek philosophers. Happiness may be their purpose of life, but we can't find happiness by pursuing it. We only find happiness along the way as we seek other more basic goods. Paradoxically, he said, our very own lives aren't about us. We only find our lives along the way as we seek something more important. His point as he developed it in the sermon was to observe that while the seminary's mission was to foster the knowledge and love of God, many in that seminary found themselves really focusing on themselves, their own journeys, their faith journeys, their career journeys, when the reminder needed to be brought to everyone's attention that it is meant to be about God, after all. And this is just one way that the words from Jesus' gospel today are shown to be true. When he says that to find your life is to lose it, and to lose your life for his sake is to find it. With this passage, when Jesus tells the disciples what is about to happen, uh, we can easily uh, fall into the trap of reading these words with the familiarity of uh, our understanding today and forget what it must have sounded like originally to those disciples. Now, just before this passage, we have the famous part where um, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And ultimately, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, the Messiah. Well, following that, Jesus tells them what is going to happen, that he is going to suffer, that he is going to be killed, and then he will rise in three days. And Peter gets very upset. He rebukes Peter, or Peter rebukes him, then he rebukes Peter. Well, I want you to remember that the word Messiah, we hear it and we maybe think about Handel. We think about the salvation spiritually that comes with a Messiah, the way that we look to a Messiah. But in, in those days, they believed the Messiah, which meant anointed one, the Christ, literally would be a warrior. They were expecting someone to take military might to defeat their oppressors. So you can imagine the scandal it would be to hear that this Messiah was going to die at the hand of the oppressors. And it's kind of surprising, actually, that the disciples didn't just turn and leave him at that moment. But then we hear another shocking phrase. Remember, to our ears, it's nothing like how shocking it would have been to them when he says, you must take up your cross and follow me. I was thinking about this as we processed in following a cross that was being held by the person in our service whose role is called the crucifer. We've got that great hymn that we sing often in the church, Lift High the Cross. Well, to them, 
cross was nothing but an instrument of torture and humiliation and death, a way for the Roman state to execute people in a horrendous way. So could you imagine if somebody were to say that you must take up your electric chair and follow? That's how it might have sounded to their ears. Again, amazing that they didn't turn and leave him. He also has very strong words about how important it is that they would leave all that they had, all their possessions, and follow. Let's remember that they basically had done this. These were the former fishermen who left their career, their families, their fishing nets, their boats. They'd left it all to follow him. Well, the final word that I want to point out and maybe open up a little bit is that word that, that may catch uh, some of us when Jesus is rebuking Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. So let's remember that the word Satan is not just the first name of the devil. What Satan is in the, the Hebrew expression of that word is the adversary. And Peter is being an adversary. Adversary. He is being that in that moment. And why? Because his mind is set not on heavenly things, but on earthly things. And it matters where our orientation lies. What we set our minds on, we, we set our hearts on, that is where we will head. I love the way that C.S. Lewis puts it. And C.S. Lewis was so good at taking big ideas and saying them in really practical ways, digestible ways. He says, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. So we are to set our minds on heavenly things. <coughs> David Kelsey continued in his sermon to point out that the disciples often get it wrong because they are thinking that it is about them when in reality it is always about Jesus. And that we too often get things wrong when we think it is about ourselves when really, ultimately, it's about God. Kelsey said, you aren't to live your life in your own name. You are to do this in the name of the one into whom you are engrafted in baptism, by whose life and love you have been given life and given it anew, by whose spirit you are drawn into that love which is God's own life. We don't really live our own lives if we try to live them in our own names. We truly live them when we live them in God's name. Whoever seeks to save their lives will lose them. Jesus said, but whoever loses their lives for my sake will find them. It's not about us. It's about God. And I would add to that in this discussion where life and death is brought up that the tragedy is not to die, but to not have lived. And to not have discovered that in him is life. And in giving oneself to him is to really live. Christianity, it must be said again, is about a willingness to be transformed and nothing less. This is not merely an exercise in self-improvement. 
This is something that is so exciting and so hard because it takes all of us, all that we have, all that we are. I'm going to close with a, an illustration that I love, that I've shared with some of you before, I know, but it's my privilege to share it again, and it comes from an Episcopal priest named Cynthia Borjo, who is a bit of a mystic, a theologian. She happens to be a hermit and a teacher, and uh, she has a playful mind, and she wrote this illustration in her book, The Wisdom Way of Knowing, and she says, once upon a time, in a not-so-faraway land, there was a kingdom of acorns nestled at the foot of a grand old oak tree. These were modern acorns, midlife acorns, who engaged in a lot of self-help courses. There were seminars called Getting All You Can Out of Your Shell. There were woundedness and recovery groups for acorns who had been bruised in their original fall from the tree. There were spas for oiling and polishing those shells and various acornopathic therapies to enhance longevity and well-being. And one day, in the midst of this kingdom, there suddenly appeared a stranger who had fallen from the sky, who was capless and dirty, who made an immediate bad impression. And crouched beneath the oak tree, he said, We are that. Delusional thinking, obviously, the other acorns concluded, but one of them continued to engage him in conversation. So tell us, how would we become that tree? Well, he said, pointing downward, it has something to do with going into the ground and cracking open the shell. Insane, they responded, totally morbid. Why then, we wouldn't be acorns anymore. Exactly. The point, of course, is transformation. Transformation is for us all, and it will take all of us. Those who are willing to lose their lives for his sake will gain their lives. It is so easy for us to cling to our acorn existence, hoping to be the best acorns we can be, thinking that that is the best that we can do, but God wants us to be oak trees. Amen.